all of the stuff, people's fears around COVID are, are totally linked to all of those um, fe- feelings around our bodies and, and how much control we have over them. And, you know, I think um, some of the misinformation is designed to appeal to women because women have different experiences of the medical health system than um, men do. Um, our bodies are more medicalised and more intervened with. And then, of course, as you touched on before, Helen, Māori and Pacifica peoples and refugee and migrant populations in New Zealand have different experiences of the racism of the health system. Kia ora and welcome back to The C Word. We're your hosts, Helen King. And Belinda Tran Lawrence. I didn't cut you off this time. I know. Bonus. Because then I just don't feel like a valued co-host, I have to say. <laughs> I got over-enthusiastic during our last recording and, and I introduced our, us both and then um, was gently reminded that there are two. <laughs> we have to keep reminding people that we are doing this via Zoom and it has nothing to do with lockdown. We always do this via Zoom. So it's pretty hard having conversations where you don't interrupt each other. Yeah, in this kind of uh, context. Yes, because it, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because when you're having a conversation in um, in person, you're taking those those cues of them that you don't get online. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing for me is that I never really realised this is part of my ADHD, but I find it very hard looking people in the eye when I talk to them, and so I kind of trained myself to. I knew that's what people did. So it's even harder doing this over um, the computer because I'm I'm looking everywhere other than at you. (laughs) So it's, yeah, the challenges of not living in the same town and um, also being on Zoom are um, often apparent when we record. And the benefits, the benefits. (laughs) I'm not locked down in Auckland. I'm quite happy about that. Oh, this is very true. Very, very true. So, how was your last week been? Update oh, us. Yeah. Shall we check in? Um, yeah. Do you know, to be honest, the last week has been a blur. Um, it's been one of those times where I don't remember what day it is. It's hard to keep track of time. Um, and I actually think, yeah, this lockdown, I'm calling it a lockdown because it, it, it essentially is lockdown, but with takeaways, as I've um, explained to... <laughs> <laughs> That's what my daughter called... Level three the last time. This yeah. is a lockdown, but with takeaways. Little takeaways. Um, but I'm finding it a lot harder this time. I have been exhausted um, and really, um, yeah, really jumpy. And, yeah, my nerves are definitely frayed. And I don't want to go. Helen King does not want to leave the house. Um, so just like. Chemotherapy, basically. It's just like chemo. It is. Where you just, I feel like I'm in this weird no man's land. And I think, yeah, it is very similar to that. We are, um, there's that distinct sort of sense of uncertainty. And it's really, I find that really difficult because I think before this all happened, I kind of felt people had sort of, you know, they'd let out that breath that we were all holding. You know, people had started going on little holidays around the country. We, um, it sort of felt like we were just getting into a, a new sort of normal routine. And then that happened. And I just don't feel emotionally robust with it. I, um, yeah, I am hard. 
while you're talking, mm-hmm. I just suddenly thought, do you think part of it, and this is absolutely going to feed into our discussion tonight, but that part of it was the first time it was like something new. And it was kind of like a heroic narrative around that, you know? We're like, we're getting stuck in and we're all in this together and we're staying home. Almost like that, kind of like sending our boys off to war type thing. You know, there was there was lots of that, I felt. Whereas this time, and look, it's like having cancer and it goes on for a while. And this time it's like, yeah, this is not exciting anymore. This is actually just hard. And we really don't want to be doing it. And yeah. Yeah. That hits the nail on the head completely. And I think, yeah, that's definitely what's been going on is um yeah, I just I think a lot of us feel this time round, um that we don't yeah, we don't have that rah rah of a right, we're gonna get stuck in as this team of five million and, and you know, do our part. And I actually um I actually also think that there has been this prolonged lead up to the election and I personally am getting politics um, fatigue and yeah I just as been I have definitely found this um, this sort of lockdown a lot more challenging than I did the last time yeah I think we've also just been we've been hearing and thinking and talking about COVID for you know, all year down. And I think, I mean, other things do continue, but we're not talking about them anymore. You know, there are lots of other issues. There are lots of other things we could and possibly should be talking about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And what's been going on with you this week? I know it's been quite a big week for other reasons. You've sort of, um, you know, limited your your exposure to the the COVID machine. What's been going on? Well, I this I can't remember whether I said it in our last show, but this time last week, so Wednesday last week, I flew back from Christchurch. Um, I had taken my mum on a 12-day road trip, bit of a jaunt around the South Island. I was one of those New Zealanders out enjoying the country. And because I work for Mercy University by a distance, I was working during that jaunt, so... That was, I was pretty tired by the end of it, Um, and I came home, and of course I hadn't done as much marking as I should have done during that time, so I have been literally tied to my computer for the last week, and anyone who thinks that marking doesn't sound like fun, I I don't actually mind marking that much, Mm. but um, doing it all day, every day, is, it's not the kind of job that you can. So I'm completely exhausted from that. And then I've had a few, I've had a bit of a tough week because I've had a few things pop up. Um, And this is directly related to all our cancer discussions. And now um, we talked about scanxiety at one point. Mm. Yeah. I had, so I don't know if listeners remember, because no, you should, like my personal life and my (laughs) death, this should be paramount in your head. We should be, they should be listening to every episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they should. And they should be taking notes on us. There will be a quiz at some point, people. There will be a quiz. <laughs> but um, I had my second mastectomy. I had my last surgery just prior to lockdown, so in March of this year. And then because of lockdown, 
and because my surgeon had to take some personal leave, I never actually saw anyone after surgery. I never had a follow-up appointment. I rang them about a month ago and went, is this ever going to happen? And they went, oh, do you want to see someone? Mm, yes, please. That would kind of be nice. It's not healing that great. So I finally had that this week. Um, and really, it was no big deal. It was a surgery follow-up appointment. And much to my surprise, the night before, I was getting the jitters and it took me a while to realise that that's what it was. I just felt really out of sorts. Um, and my husband did actually come with me because I'm a complete wuss and it's nice to have someone to hold my hand. But, yeah, I mean, that was fine. It kind of wasn't fine and there's stuff in there that I'd really like to talk about with listeners, but tonight's not the time. So we'll put a in that and we'll come back to it but as an appointment you know it was fine I'm I'm not dying of cancer today so that's all good but um, later on so today I had another appointment and I have a planned surgery next week it's not a big surgery it's one of the side effects of chemo has irritated something that I already had going on with my eyes and I need to go and have an operation to get this, these things on my eyes just like they kind of just like scrub them off they deal them off <laughs> you should see the expression on Helen's face here um, and like it's not even under general it's under local but sitting there today like I went in for that just like that but they call it a biometry appointment, I think. Hmm. I just had to put some drops in my eyes, which numb the surface of your eye, and then they had to test the pressure on your eye. It was no big deal. I really need to emphasize this. It was not, it should not have been a traumatic experience, and I hated it. Hmm. I hated it. And when he was talking to me about surgery, I said, well, oh, oh no, get this. Get this, Helen. I haven't said this to you. So I'm sitting there, and of course they have to go through all the, oh, you know, this is, it could be this, or it could be, so he said, he just threw this out there, he went, it could be cancer, but it probably isn't. And I just, I must have gone, what is this? I said, yeah, no, you, you can't just, I'm not someone that you can just you throw. You just throw out, it might be cancer really to someone like us. I mean, he didn't, I think he thought about it after he said it. And he probably doesn't really know or probably even remember my history. Um, I mean, it's not very pertinent in this situation. There is a friend that yes. that brings this to our discussion, which we should probably get into at some point. Yeah, we should. Our discussion <laughs> this week is part of my coping strategies for the last week because I've been feeling more than a little overwhelmed. Um, and part of that is I have not been paying much attention to the news. In fact, there are some days when I've messaged Helen and said, I'm not listening to the Prime Minister's update. Can you just tell me the key points, please? Um, and so I have been happily existing in my little bubble, um, or as we sometimes call it, my echo chamber, because the people in my echo chamber agree with me. And I don't have to be exposed to what I would call all the bullshit outside of it, which I feel that I just can't at the moment. However, 
Helen tends to just delve right into all of that, which we do sometimes wonder whether it's actually a good idea. I just go straight in. I just, I, and I haven't, dear listeners, I didn't, I haven't reduced my social or news um, interest. You said you were going to. I, I kind of have in the past couple of days. I, I didn't actually even watch the 1pm briefing. I have tried to kind of um, moderate, but it is a very hard thing for me to do to, to moderate from looking at things. Um so I have been looking, and one of the things that people may have seen in the past um, few days is there was the awful rumour about one of the well, the, the adult child of the um, family who were at the centre of this um, latest COVID outbreak, and some hideous rumours about this woman. And um, I, really yeah. think, I have no idea what you're talking about. I won't repeat it, but basically they were they were rumours. They were really awful rumours. They were racist. Um, they were completely untrue. And the short story is is that David Ferrier and the um, his colleague that he did the Tickled movie with, or the Tickled documentary, side note, if you have not seen it, find it and watch it. It's amazing. Um, and they actually tracked down the source of this rumour. And it was a, a guy that had um, made up this, he essentially made up some assertions on Reddit and they had been picked up. I don't know how, I guess things, you know, they do. Um, and even though he he ended up deleting this post, it was too late. It then ended up on this vile um, Facebook page, which I won't go into either because I don't want to give it any oxygen. Um, but yeah, and so this rumour just got so bad that the Minister of Health this week had to stand up during that one pm presser. I saw that. I was kind of wondering what he was responding to. He was telling us off like children because we needed to be. Um, that there was no truth any of the claims that had been made. And, you know, that's, I think that's what kind of happens in these situations. And it's what Belinda and I started getting curious about, about these conspiracy theories or misinformation and, and the impact that they have. Because I, I know for both of us, we've, um, you know, when you've had cancer, you, you kind of get exposed to this stuff at a, at a smaller level because there is so much misinformation and conspiracy theories about Oh, cancer. come on, let's be honest. Smaller level? You get freaking inundated with it. You do. I mean, it's not like, um, you know, not like to the level of COVID where everyone's talking about it. It's kind of more, it, um, it gets thrown at you in unexpected messages or... Um, advice from friends and um, yes, advice from friends. Sometimes advice from strangers. Oh yeah. Oh. Did you see that I put out? I think I've said this on air before. Um, I admin a support a Facebook group, a closed Facebook group for people who have or are experiencing breast cancer in New Zealand. Um, if that is you and you are not in my group and you want to be in my group, this. Go ahead and hit us up. Well, we look forward to welcoming you, welcoming you. But some of the things that people said in there, so I put a post in there when we talked about doing this and said, yeah. tell me, 
tell me the things you've been told. Tell me the worst, the annoying, the funny in retrospect, but actually you wanted to punch someone at the time. And you saw the replies, eh? It was just like, holy, people said those things. One lady said that she was standing in the chemist and a complete stranger said to her that she had cancer. I don't know how the stranger knew she had cancer. I guess maybe her prescription. She had cancer because of sugar, and if she didn't stop having sugar, she had a 50% chance of it coming back again. And then one of them, I couldn't believe um, a woman has um, commented, was that her GP said that he was good at helping people who are dying. Oh, my gosh. Her GP rang her. You know, I kind of hope that this person is listening to this. Yeah. Her GP rang her and said that, so obviously the GP doesn't diagnose. The GP would have, it would have come through in the notes that this person had been diagnosed that yeah. day. And my GP rang me that night and my GP was amazing. I hope she's listening. Because mm. she rang to say, I'm so sorry this has happened to you. I'm always here. Well, this lady's GP rang to say, Oh, just so that you know, I'm really good at helping people who are dying. It's great. My GP was amazing too. She was really, really good. So I'm glad that didn't happen to me. Um, another one here, I thought, um, and I've heard this as well, it was the root canal one. <laughs> I just laugh at that one. I just don't even understand. I've never had a root canal. Me neither. <laughs> I don't even either. So, and one of them was that... Cancer cells are activated by resentment, and that's why I have breast cancer. So <laughs> her, family that to, her family said that to her family. were obviously feeling unfairly treated. So they yeah. said she obviously had cancer. <laughs> and then someone else, did you see someone else's ex? Who was now their ex? Oh, and I should say to everyone, we're only sharing these things like the people are okay with us. But yeah. obviously we're not going to name them. Um, this person's ex told her that she had cancer because she was bottling up stress. She decided that obviously then it was his fault because yeah. he was the stress. I and reckon. He I have ill. to read this one out because it, it is, um, I like the last bit. My boss said to me, don't do chemo if I was you. I would never do chemo if I was diagnosed as chemo kills you. Oh, that's right. Cancer doesn't kill people. What a knob. I would agree. <laughs> I think I would, have, I would have punched him, boss or not. But didn't you get that? Like, I definitely got some of the, oh, I would never do chemo. It's like, seriously? Like, okay, yeah. fair enough if that's your decision. And I think a lot of this comes down, doesn't it, to who you trust and who you see as being an expert. I like this explanation that I read of what a conspiracy theory is or an aspect of it. So an important aspect of conspiracy theory is to come up with a seemingly coherent explanation that is consistent with one's worldviews, which I think makes sense of why mm, these things take I like the, Yeah, I like the consistent with your worldview, but... yeah. Because if you naturally think that everyone's out to get you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And so we wanted to discuss how conspiracy theories thrive in certain situations. And there's been some really interesting work coming out of um, the research unit up here, the Te Punaha Matatini attached to Auckland University. Basically, they've been tracking the information around COVID online since January. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about that, what they've found, and sort of get some insight into what's going on. And so earlier in the week, we caught up with Kate Hanna, who is their executive manager and associate investigator, to talk about what is being dubbed the infodemic and what characterises information and why it can be harder to kind of figure out what's trustworthy and what's reliable how do you you know how do you navigate the information that we are often so bombarded with so we'll we'll play that interview for you now we started monitoring then and we've continued to monitor throughout time so mainly looking at uh, Twitter and um, open Facebook, so people's public Facebook pages. Um, obviously, for ethical reasons, there's more difficulty looking at um, other more private um, channels of communication. Um, and we know that Twitter is a place where there is a lot of um, either robotic bot acting or foreign actors, um, and so it's a good place to kind of see how manipulation might be happening um, of real people's feelings and fears. So we've been monitoring that um, relatively low-key because the mathematical modelling and the equity questions around the mathematical modelling have been really urgent and pressing for the wider team. And then, obviously, last week, um, we just pivoted almost instantly to ramp up uh, our work on the disinformation piece so that we could look back over that last seven months of, of monitoring and give a really accurate um, assessment for ourselves, for government, for civil society on has have things changed? Is there more disinformation now? Um, what kind of disinformation is happening now? Where is it directed? What kind of themes does it have? So that, again, we can help to counteract against it. Can you tell where it's coming from and if it's being um, directed in particular groups or directions? So we're just starting to do the kind of mass computational work that will enable us to start predicting things like that. And what we need to do for those sorts of things is take um, sort of pulse settings on other periods of high activity. So one of the periods of high activity that we might look at, for example, is uh, during the time that the um, firearms reform legislation was being debated in Parliament, there were a lot of foreign actors participating in New Zealand social media discourses around gun legislation and gun control, largely from the United States with a particular um, political bent. And so if we can take a pulse set and sort of see how much foreign influence was happening then, we can then look and say, well, is, you know, what is the comparator for the level of, of assumed foreign influence that's happening now? And are any of the actors or languages or discourses of that time similar to what we're seeing now? And then we might be able to extrapolate and say that looks like American interference or American participation in New Zealand's um, social media discourses. So obviously we're restricted by the fact we are looking at um, English language social media only. 
And so that is obviously problematic and, you know, a better picture would come from having multilingual and, you know, in the dream world when we had, if we had lots of funding and we would collaborate with many, many partners to be able to do that kind of thing. But at the moment, you know, we are working with what we can do. But what we have seen is that um, the number of bots or um, presumed bots has remained pretty static over the period of the pandemic. So we're not seeing a huge spike yet in the participation of known um, agents who are seeking to manipulate and foment sort of discord in New Zealand. However, we've seen some really nasty features of what we would think of as disinformation or even malinformation. So the Facebook um, story which was promulgated everywhere about um, one of the people in, who's a part of the cluster, um, you know, which obviously came from, seems to have come from a Reddit speculation from a young New Zealander. Um, you know, one of the features of that is that it's either a completely organically generated, somebody picked up on the Reddit story and then did much more speculation and built in a whole bunch of um, key triggers for kind of New Zealand's underlying racism and sexism mm. and, and particularly against Pacifica women. Or, unfortunately, somebody who really knew what they were doing wrote that from that small amount of information that was in the Reddit story and, and promulgated that with an intent to sow those seeds of discord and disunity amongst New Zealanders. And, you know, it's really hard to predict until uh, we have more um, content around the discourses, but I was really intrigued as to how um, vernacular and colloquial and really targeted at a particular type of New Zealander the Facebook um, post was. You know, it had words like root in it, which, you know, was a, that's a, it's really vernacular. It was just so spot on that um, it seemed a bit too good to be true. It's so interesting you say that because when I read that post and had a look on that Facebook page, I kept thinking there is something very familiar about the way this person is speaking and I still can't pinpoint it, but I feel like... I've come across that before. So there, yeah, there's a very interesting point about being very targeted about the language that is being used in those sort of posts. And so that's, you know, in a way more insidious than people resharing mm. American or UK or um, Australian content online because those pieces of content around COVID tend to have certain kind of cultural features, like the American stuff is quite shouty and ranty and, and you know, it's quite confronting to a sort of low-key New Zealander. And so, you know, they have different sort of cultural way, messaging, ways of messaging. So that, you know, that Facebook post was really quite concerning in the way that it hit the buttons that will trigger a bunch of New Zealanders to go, oh, yeah, that seems plausible, you know, that, yeah, you know, I, I know people like that or, I, you know, that seems like a story I would have heard at the pub at the water cooler. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a real concern for us. Yeah, and I and this slight deviation, but um, something that we've talked a little bit about um, before is, I guess, the different um, ways people experience their cancer treatment and the disparities and things. And we know for our Māori and Pacifica um, 
communities, especially their cancer outcomes are far worse. Um, and sometimes, you know, you look at that and you think, is this because this is the, the you do not trust the system? And so if you don't trust the system that you, you need to be within to, to heal you, yeah. then are you going to access it? And that's I see that with um, some of the stuff um, around misinformation and the rise of particular, um, you know, figures at the moment that yeah. are really appealing to our, our Māori population. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think um, Tina Nata wrote a really fantastic mm. piece um, about this. But, you know, when the state has repeatedly... Um, and historically called for the mass death of groups of population. I mean, she mentions in her post, um, and I, the smoothing the pillow of a dying race, um, you know, the rhetoric. And it's very easy to be convinced that perhaps this new pandemic is part of a pattern of state interventions that are bad for Māori. And so we see um, language around uh, what will happen to children who are diagnosed with COVID, um, really valid fears around vaccination um, and the idea of forced vaccination or, or compulsory vaccination um, to do with bodily autonomy and, and, the, and, and parental and other whānau decision-making and, and discussions around things like overcrowded housing or... or um, uh, types of work, all of which are sort of code language for systemic racism in not just New Zealand's health system, but in New Zealand's systemic and structural racism, which means that when um, these stories are told that paint a picture of a distrustworthy stage, it is very easy to accept them. And, and people, you know, are rightly fearful. And I think that really comes back to, your, you know, the cancer experience, because you know, people, when you're living with cancer or going through cancer treatment or as my mother did, living with mm. and then dying from, from breast cancer, um, people are very, very keen to offer their suggestions for what you should do because they're so fearful of cancer themselves that anything that they can latch on to to say, oh, that won't happen to me, mm -hmm. it's your fault, you, you you got that because of something you did. Yeah. And it, it's, and it's really devastating to see, you know, um, we had yeah, really close family members and things sort of go, oh, well, you know, you did drink wine once or, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, it, it, and it is what we have to remember is, you know, in that, from that coming from that kindness um, places, sometimes struggle to come from, but it's always a good place to try to come from. Mm is that the people are scared and that's why they latch on to these ideas that place um, what we think, what we call it in kind of the space that I'm working in is a safe danger. So when you place your trust in a safe danger, you're moving it away from things that you might have to change yourself or things you might have to do into responsibility being on somebody else. And so the danger is safe. It's been put over there. Yeah. It's very true. Yeah. yeah. And so we see that we see that happening with people. And the reason why it's happening appears to be happening more now with COVID is um, because people are more fearful and are more tired, all of those things that we talked about 
before about you know our resilience has been broken down by a really long time of dealing of living through this um very very strange set of times yeah absolutely um it is very interesting with cancer and and that kind of blame um because you so many people have theories whether it's um your weight or whether you yeah what you ate and and that sort of thing but um you know i think sometimes these things happen and i know that sounds simplistic and (laughs) and probably um yeah but i think that as humans we are always searching for the reason of why or why did that happen and you know sometimes there actually isn't a straightforward answer um that kind of helps quell those worries yeah it's been really interesting from a personal perspective that um um my, one of my specialists wanted me to go for some um, genetic counselling because of my mother's um, death from presumed breast cancer, although oh, wow. the primary yeah. site was never found, so she died from mm-hmm. secondary cancers. And mm-hmm. so I got um, all of her medical records earlier in the year, actually while we were under lockdown the first time, at, so that I could pass them off to my specialist and, and they could make the recommendation around um, genetic counselling or not. And, you know, in the end, all of these, you know, oncologists and everybody involved and no one, they were never able to figure out the primary site apart from all of the testing. And there's just this one letter from the primary oncologist at Waikato um, sending her into hospice, which is when she was still physically quite well, but it was when they knew there was nothing more that could be done. And he just writes in this letter, he says, um, I'm sending you the, this unfortunate young woman and and it's just that's it. Like you know, this is the this is the man. This is his job. He does this every day, and he's going. This fifty-two-year-old woman. I just cannot. There is nothing we can do to explain it, and we can't we can't fix it. And you know, and that's that's the thing is that people. Are, that's a story that scares people because that is unfortunately sometimes how how life works. We don't know. Yeah, and and I think um, I think everyone who has either had cancer or experienced it in the family knows that it is a, a very frightening word because people do associate it with death, um, and they yeah you know, I think you've touched on it before where we we like to think that we can control things and that we don't want to be out of control of our bodies, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, all of the stuff, people's fears around COVID are, are totally linked to all of those um, fe- feelings around our bodies and, and how much control we have over them. And, you know, I think um, some of the misinformation is designed to appeal to women because women have different experiences of the medical health system than um, men do. Um, our bodies are more medicalized and more intervened with. And then, of course, as you touched on before, Helen, Māori and Pacifica peoples and refugee and migrant populations in New Zealand have different experiences of the racism of the health system, despite the best efforts of many, many medical professionals who are wonderful and are doing their best. It is systemic and structural. And so what that means is that we know from international data and from our own understanding of access to healthcare and treatment that, you know, if we were in a situation where triaging was having to happen on a large scale with um, either COVID-related illness or the impact of COVID-related illness on the broader health system as a whole with other illnesses that one would expect having to be triaged 
um, in a hospital situation, we know that those triage decisions are going to adversely affect the most at-risk members of the population the most. And that's just that's just a fact that we have to continue to talk about so that we can change the system. really interesting insight into what's been going on since you know COVID kind of crept into our existence um, about I feel like it barreled into our existence. It's barreled in didn't it yeah and I really and I think this is what is so relevant for people who have um, faced a life-threatening disease or are facing it and I really like this idea around how do we figure out what is trustworthy what is reliable because I think I think that it goes to the heart of what we've been kind of discussing is that yeah, when I someone says to you don't eat sugar it's going to kill you cancer you know feeds on it how do you know that that's reliable where does that come from like who do you actually turn to because if I say that to my oncologist because um, I actually did ask him whether, you know, so, yeah. yeah, I said to him, um, I'm sure he got sick of my questions, whether there were certain diets and, you know, because there's so so many things get suggested to you. And he made a really good point of that it's very, very hard to do, he said, randomised um, enough, a big enough random. Random, oh my god, I can't even Randomised. testing on food and diets that it's too... It's too difficult to have a definitive answer, um, which I thought was a very scientist sort of thing to say. But I think it's true. It's like I always like to look at who is producing the research, who, you know, is it being funded by someone? Because, you know, without getting too political, there are um, some stuff, information going around at the moment about some of the things to do with our election. And when you scratch the surface a bit, you realise that, it's, you know, that there's an agenda behind the way that that research is being... Um, I think we need trained. to be very careful about going. Yeah. I do. That's why I'm, I'm dancing around it. But it's, you know, I think it's always a good idea to kind of see where your information is coming from because I actually... Because I, I don't know if you ever... Um, if anyone ever recommended vitamin C infusion to you when you were... So... Oh, um, actually, can we come back to this? I feel like I want to say something else first. All right, we'll, we'll park okay. that. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put a pin in the vitamin C thing, and we, yeah. I've definitely got something. I got something to say about everything, but I'll come back to that. But first, I made a note here that I wanted to talk about and share with the listeners. Because I feel like this is the beginning for me is what my reaction was when I first was diagnosed, when I first found out that I had cancer. Mm. And how it turned out to be quite different from what I would have predicted. Like if someone had said to me, You're going to be diagnosed with cancer, how do you reckon you'd react to that? I'm positive that I would have said to them, I would be researching the heck out of that. I'd be following every little line. I'd be figuring out, like, what's the best diet, and I'd be, I would be researching alternative therapies. I would not just be trusting what the oncologist had to say because 
it's the kind of person I it's the kind of person I've always been. I'm not particularly a mainstream believer. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Are you sure? I, yeah, no, positive. But I am someone who I tend to think that most people have an agenda, and I want to figure out what it is. Um, and that there's a lot more truth out there than what is necessarily presented by the mainstream framework, whether it's um, philosophies from different cultures or countries or whatever it may be. Mm. And much to my surprise, I discovered I did not react like that at all. I have never really done a lot of research. Mm. Um, I, hand on heart, have no clue what my statistic is for a recurrence of my cancer or not. And don't tell me, because I am not interested in knowing. Oh. Um, yeah, and I know you'll be different, Helen. But I this, do know everything. Everything. Yeah, see, no, <laughs> I, I really, really thought I would, and I really, really wasn't. Because, and I think that the reason it was is because... I identified early on what I was going to need to do to come out of this or to go through this, to, to be in that space as healthily for myself, mentally and physically as I could be. I do wonder if my husband's rubbed off on me a little bit over the years too. We have been together a very, very long time. And he is much more trusting of that kind of, authority figures what people say than I am and than I ever have been Hmm. Um, and he's much more one for thinking about where do you want to put your energy and I think that's what it came down to for me it's like where should I put my energy is this and it's like a cost benefit analysis isn't it it's like if I put a lot of energy into lots of research and figuring this out, how much is the benefit I'm actually going to get out of it? Um, yeah. I guess the conclusion I came to was not enough. Yeah. It's funny. I kind of swayed between it. Um, I I wanted to know kind of outcomes and that sort of thing because I think it did help in some respects. Um, and actually, when I when I saw my surgeon this time, um, you know, for my yearly, um, I guess, check, and he said to me, with every year you go sort of cancer-free, the better chance it is in it long term. And that helped me. It, it really did. And I think that's just... I do know that. That but I do know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess... Uh, I sort of sway between needing lots of information and then having to step back and go, you know, am I actually driving myself nuts with this? Um, do I need to? Yeah. What it ended up being for me is I want the information that is beneficial. So if there is a reason for me to know particular stats, especially if someone else needs it, if, like, if that information would be helpful for me to know to support someone else, well, then yes, definitely. But in my own case, I figure I don't need to know what the stats are for my particular recurrence or survival or anything because that doesn't necessarily affect what happens to me. And realistically, it's what happens to me that is actually going to be the important thing. And I realised that the statistics didn't 
it didn't if I knew that fifty percent of people who take Herceps and get heart issues, they don't. I just made that up. It's much less than that. Um that didn't actually tell me whether I was going to be someone who got them or not. So what was the point? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because I, I think and this is slight it I kind of jumped in my head in terms of research and information. Because I, I think that um one of the things that sort of has often annoyed me um, is that idea that there's this like big pharma conspiracy um, and I just, that annoys me a lot because I, I don't buy into it, um, but there was a a quote that I, I found when I was looking into, you know, some of the issues around what we're talking about today and I thought this was quite a good thing to sort of keep in mind when People are sort of talking about the fact that there is the cure to cancer, they just haven't given it to us yet. Um, and this came from a Forbes article where it says, successful cancer research is not something accomplished by a 40-year-old living in his mother's basement and working out of a garage. There are hundreds of thousands of cancer researchers throughout the globe racing to get the cure, claim to fame and a certain Nobel Prize. These cancer researchers have family members and close friends who have or who have or have died from cancer. I can personally count more than twenty in my close circle. No one is going to suppress a cure. I want to go back to something you said because I I think it, you know the some of the the stuff that people have been talking about around um, conspiracy theories and especially. At the moment, um, there are a lot of um, Maori people who seem to be kind of pulled into a search. I'm not going to even name him because I just think he's such a, a fool. No, I, no, no. no, I don't want to give him airtime. But he is amassing quite a following. And that idea that when a system has failed you over and over again, then you are going to be susceptible to being pulled into alternative um ideologies yeah that, that makes sense to me because I, I always think about and I don't know if I've talked about or given the story before where I was in hospital for one night when I was on docetaxel and I met another woman who was the same age as me exact same cancer um but she was from um the far north and she was Maori and her cancer had spread um, and part of it was because after she had her surgery, she was too scared to have chemo. And I've always wondered how different an interaction had she had with her specialist to what I had had. Because so you're thinking that some people, because they feel they have been let down by the system in other ways, yeah. are going to be more naturally suspicious of anything that smacks at the system. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? And Absolutely. you wonder how much does that feed into poor statistics for certain groups such as Māori and Pacifica because you're already getting a pretty hard roll of that, you know, in the general mill of things. Yeah. I think yeah, so. I never thought about that. That's a very yeah. good point. And we, we will actually talk about this a bit more. I'm um, currently trying to, to pin down a, a very interesting doctor um, that works up here in Auckland um, to talk a little bit more about um, equity and healthcare and what that actually means and what that actually looks like. Because it, it is something that I've thought about a lot is, you know, if the system has continually let you down, then... You know, I 
want to listen to Ashley Bloomfield telling me about COVID. Yeah. Uh, much more than done. I know the guy at the corner shop who's sure he's got a theory of how China did it all on purpose. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I think you're right, and that's that's some of the you know the um, advice that people give for sort of maintaining your mental health during these you know the, what we're going through is to limit your news, but make sure it comes from a reliable news source. So that's the same for me. Is that I want to listen to that one pm stand up because I I know that that information is going to be correct. Um, you know that's and it. It's easier on your mental health to kind of just go, okay, well, that's the information, rather than some of the, quite frankly, batshit crazy stuff that has been going on. (laughs) Yeah, because people who have never been taught or have never challenged themselves to weigh out different kinds of information and actually look at the quality of different kinds of information, Hmm. all information looks the same. Whether it's come from the guy down the road, the thing you saw on Facebook, or an expert in their field, it all looks equal. It looks the same. You can then just choose which one you want to believe and go with. Whereas I really don't want my students to do that, and oncologists don't want their patients to do that. No. Which brings us back to the vitamin C thing. Yes, because I was told not to by two different people. One, my surgeon, one, someone whose husband has gone through a very long, um, I want to say battle fight. I'm sorry, that's to, those are our, those are our um, excluded words. But, you know, her husband's been dealing with it for a long time and they were also told not to have it because it can actually um, damage your veins and interfere with the chemo. My, my surgeon said not to have it because basically it's a, it's a cheap product that um, they charge you hundreds of dollars for and you basically wear it out. Um, but then I know people who have had it and, and think it's amazing. So it, it's a, yeah. yeah. And I go, and I think, and anyone who's listening, I mean, everyone who's listening has some kind of interest in cancer and the cancer community. And I am sure, positive, you will all have very strong and differing views on this. Um, I've got to be honest, I never really delved into the research. Um, I went into this thinking that I would get vitamin C because of the situation of a close friend. Um, And my oncologist is so, he hates the whole thing so much. He he wouldn't even let you take it as a tablet. He... Is just ruling me against it. And most of it is because he thinks that it may actually be, um, what's the word I want, blocking some of the effects of the chemo. Similar to, I'm sure you've seen it, when people take, some people who take chemo will say, oh, well, I need to, like, detoxify myself, you know. I mean, I've got chemo tomorrow, so what can I, what smoothies or wood? blueberries can I be taken to get the toxins out of my system as fast as possible and I'm thinking people do you realise you need those toxins you don't want to be getting rid of them you want to be welcoming them in and saying fight the baddies fight the baddies yeah and we have uh, our kidneys and things that's our detoxifier yeah 
Yeah. Um, so, no, I didn't do vitamin C. I, personally, I think the jury is still a little bit out on mm. this particular one. Um, I don't think there has really been much evidence to show that it's harmful. Mm. I also don't think there's been a heap of a lot of mainstream evidence to show that it's helpful. Um, yeah. But I'm hesitant to go too much in this direction because I don't know a lot and I know other people have done a lot of research and they do really know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just before we wrap up, we have some housekeeping. Oh, I have so many more things to say here. Seriously, yes, we do, do. two hour podcast, Helen. Two hours. Do you think people would listen to us for that long? I don't know. We could tr- we could just go live for two hours and see okay. what happens. Do I get to say one more thing before we? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, I um for those of you who. No, I'm going to have some words of advice. This is Helen, make a note. These are my words of advice. So for those of you who are either going through it yourself or know someone else going through cancer and how we all know someone, I think my top piece of advice would be don't give advice. Yes. Because, you know, they're intelligent people, most of them, hopefully, everybody. Like, everybody's coping with a whole heap of stuff already. Don't, just don't jump in with your unsolicited advice. We know that you absolutely want the best for that person. And, like, if there's a chance that this eating this yeast is going to cure their cancer, then you want them to eat the yeast. But just don't. No. The only advice I would ever give anyone going through chemotherapy is take the laxatives, take the anti, <laughs> take the anti-nausea tablets. Always want to talk about poop. I know, um, and and don't feel pressured to to eat a certain way. Your body will tell you what it wants. Do I get a second point. piece of advice? Yeah, go on. Okay, all right. Because you know me, always pushing the envelope. Um, it was actually from an article that Helen sent through to me that really resonated with me. It was a woman who lost her husband to a brain tumour and spent a good part of that time trying to find sense and trying to make sense of it and trying to mm. find something or someone to blame for what had happened to her husband. Now, I mean, personally, I've never been one of those. I, I figure shit happens and, hey, it happened to me and it happens to lots of good people. But something that she came up with did resonate, and it was around focusing your effort on small acts of control. Mm. Maybe spending an hour researching blueberries. Maybe that's not the best use of your energy. Maybe what can you control? Like go and have a bath or go for a walk or maybe put your finances in order. Whatever is going to work for you, the things that you can do, the things that focus on your own personal well-being in that situation, whatever that is, do those things. Yes, I agree. I concur. That's because I'm wise. A couple of quick notices before we depart for another week. Oh, we have a notices section now. Oh, well, you know, sometimes if there's something interesting, just notice some of the cancer charities have been posting about 
um, you know, their collection months. And COVID has hit us all. You know, it, it really has. And unfortunately for some of our charities, it's hit them in the pocket. So um, I know that the Cancer Society are not holding their street appeal for the first time in 30 years. Uh, the Breast Cancer Foundation um, have struggled because um, COVID hit during when they do their pink ribbon breakfast. And another um, amazing charity of Sweet Louise who help women with um, incurable breast cancer. And they've reminded us that, you know, cancer doesn't stop during pandemics and a lot of people are suffering financially. And so if they're just asking for donations, you can go onto their website um, for some women actually can't even afford face masks, which when you're immune compromised are actually quite essential. So if you can spare a few dollars for any of these charities, I know that it would be um, greatly appreciated. So thank you for listening and joining us for another week. Um, you can listen back to all of our episodes at planetaudio.org.nz forward slash the C word or on iTunes Please subscribe to us. Thanks for listening. Bye, Bye.